This is Hole in the Air, that ever-burgeoning podcast with nothing to prove but everything to probe. My friends, I have a confession. When I hear the name Hayden, I think of symphonies or the planetarium. But when I hear the name Victor Hayden, I think of the name the Mascara Snake. Are you confused? Then it's time to be eye-opened. But first, psst. I must grant you a gentle warning. Our podcast team is still fresh off a dialectical boat, and one of them can prattle on. He's such an eager beaver. But if you're patient, you shall be rewarded, for in this one podcast, we hear not only about Victor Hayden, a.k.a. the Mascara Snake, and Captain Beefheart, and the legendary Pamela DeBar, not to mention our special guest, Anthony Osgang, but also, toward the end of this leisurely romp, there's some sublime chit-chat about the fantastical city of Vernon, a much-missed beef pork mural, and a thrift store discovery in Long Beach. So strap yourselves in, friends. The ride begins now. Hello, everyone. This is Hole in the Air. At least that's what we're calling this podcast today. We'll see if we change it by the end of the podcast or by tomorrow. Uh, my name is Paul Michael Newman. I'm joined today by Renee Nahum and also by Anthony Osgang. And we're here to discuss who knows what, but we're going to really primarily focus on a really special art exhibition that opened up quite recently in the Chinatown area of Los Angeles, of downtown Los Angeles. And that is the work, or many works, of Victor Hayden, who is known to many was known to many and still is known to many as the mascara snake. So uh, it's pretty interesting to us. Renee and, and myself have a special connection of sorts. Uh, the mascara snake, Victor Hayden, uh, is known. One of the reasons he's known is because of his connection to Captain Beefheart, a legendary figure in rock and roll. And long time ago, Renee and I actually met on our only blind date to go see Captain Beefheart play at the Golden Bear. Uh, the person who introduced us said, you're the only two people I know who like Captain Beefheart. And then a few <laughs> weeks later was saying to Renee, you'll be sorry about me, but it was too late. And so here we are today to celebrate Victor Hayden and his artwork, the late Victor, Victor Hayden, and especially to hear from Anthony about what this exhibition is like, what it means to him, and also some other things about Anthony. So at, on that note, may I invite you, Anthony, to, first of all, feel welcome Thank and, you. Welcome. And to uh, tell us a bit about yourself or the exhibition, whichever you want to start with. Right. Well, my name is Anthony Osgang, and uh, I've been living in Los Angeles since 1980, uh, making a life as an artist professionally since the uh, early 90s. I showed at the Zero One Gallery and uh, different galleries throughout the world over the years. And uh, for that reason, I was asked to curate an art show of the work of Victor Hayden, a.k.a. the Mascara Snake, um, by Lisa Derrick, who runs a gallery called Lisa Derrick Fine Arts in Chinatown. Uh, the artist Victor Hayden unfortunately passed in December 2018, and as a result, uh, the world-famous groupie, Miss Pamela DeBar, uh, was bequeathed the majority of his life's work. Uh, once their decision was made to exhibit Victor's work, the question was, 
how to do that because there were thousands, literally thousands of drawings that this man had made. He was very prolific. I was brought on board because of my aesthetic. They respect the work that I do, what I've done in the art world. So rather than try and do it themselves, I was asked to, to go through all this artwork and choose the best pieces. Uh, it turned out to be about 190 pieces that finally ended up in the gallery. So, Anthony, what first, what attracted, what attracted you to Victor's art? <laughs> Oddly enough, I said yes to curating the show before I even knew anything about him. Just because once his associate with Captain Beefheart certainly gives him a, a legitimacy in the rock and roll world. And sometimes that, that's what you need. You need some kind of background legitimacy like that to bust your way into the art world. Um, but more importantly, once I started looking at the work, I sensed a real kinship between Victor and myself in terms of the art we were doing. Uh, we both did a similar kind of abstraction. Uh, we worked about the same scale of artwork. And so it was very odd. I, I, the more I looked at the work, the more I felt really close to it. It's fair to say that uh, that while Victor's association with Beefheart and the Magic Band involves him doing the cover for one of the uh, one of the albums and also playing occasionally, very occasionally, in the band live, and also making a couple of really interesting appearances uh, on vinyl, especially a very unusual uh, discourse. Uh, about Fast and Bulbous, we may uh, touch on that in a little while, uh, a spoken <laughs> Fast uh, exchange, and yes. Um, but he was also a relative of Don Van Vliet, the uh, uh, Captain Beefheart, or the Vliet family, and he was a cousin, I believe. That's right. Uh, Victor's mother was uh, Captain Beefheart's uh, sister. So there was, uh, they knew each other from an early age. One of the most interesting things for me was when I was handed these boxes of artwork, not only was there drawings and paintings, there were also family photographs. So I was suddenly handed someone who I'd never met's life story. And I had to really study him up and figure it out from baby pictures all the way up to the date of his death, pretty much. But... Really, truly, I, I wanted to get involved in it because I felt a, a kinship as an artist, not only with his work, but I felt a responsibility to not necessarily promote him, but to make people aware of his work because he was gone. He can't do that himself anymore. So it became my job. Is this the first show that you curated? Or have you curated other shows? Yes, I've curated other shows. And... Uh, <laughs> it's funny you ask that because curating shows of living artists is a real pain in the ass because there's always somebody who is late or they have a complaint or there's just some you know bug in the honey that's just destroying everything, whereas Victor couldn't say anything. <laughs> I, I had complete control and it was really nice. I'm reminded of some very wealthy people uh, who have said, in, at least in print, Maybe they've owned baseball teams, but they also own racehorses. And they will say of racehorses that they, you know, 
basically can't talk, cannot talk back and <laughs> cannot go to the press and, and uh, run their mouths off. It's an odd thing to read, and I've read it more than once. <laughs> I, I do want to uh, just briefly, it occurs to me that, of course, there are many in the world who, and, who don't know who Captain Beefheart was. And so it's easy to slip into all kinds of simplistic, reductive, descriptive prose. Um, and I think I'm going to risk doing that for the sake of focus and time here. Um, Beefheart uh, first recorded, I believe, in the 60s, not yeah, mid-60s, maybe. I'm trying to remember if he had a group that, you know, sometimes people in that era had put out 45s when they were in high school. Of course, he was a, a, a young friend of Frank Zappa, and they off and on. They had an interesting relationship, to put it mildly, but they recorded at various times and performed at various times together. Um, but uh, Beefheart and the Magic Band were considered, are considered to be remarkably influential, uh, if even though they weren't necessarily bestsellers, but uh, there are people who certainly consider their albums to be among the great albums of all time, rock and roll. Right. To this day, there are all sorts of, of really significant artists and others who will claim Beefheart as being one of their great sources of inspiration. He passed away, I forget what year, but early 2000-something, I think. I actually uh, can claim to be somewhat responsible for getting the city of Los Angeles to adjourn in his memory after he died. <laughs> Yes, friends, it's true. On January 5th, 2011, the Los Angeles City Council unanimously agreed to adjourn its meeting that day in memory of Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart. Way to go, City of L.A. There are all kinds of reasons to check out the music, and one can see videos on YouTube uh, and other places. Of course, sometimes not everything you see will be great of any musician when it's captured by, let's say, fans or the quality is ancient. And he also is very famous in terms of his uh, recordings for not always loving what the uh, the corporate end did with his his music. And so there are, are uh, feuds and and tempestuous times uh, related to almost well to many of the albums. But still a great artist. Many of us would say a great great artist, uh, one of a kind. And uh, and so anybody who enters that orbit. In, a, in an interesting way, has something memorable to say about them if it was only that. With Victor Hayden, of course, it's the art, it's the life, it's the uh, interesting, uh, even the interesting, really interesting interviews, and it's that he set his own course. So um, but the opening, we're now in May 19th or so, I think, uh, is the date. The opening was how many days ago? It was May 11th. And it was extraordinarily well attended, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, the, the opening uh, was definitely well attended by people who were Captain Beefheart fans, all the way to people who knew absolutely nothing about it, but were just intrigued by, you know, the, the, the word, the, the term fast and bulbous. <laughs> but, but the interesting thing about Captain Beefheart is that he was raised in Mojave in the Antelope Valley. Uh, Victor's family lived in Lancaster. So there's a certain desert quality, I think, to 
the music they were putting down because initially Beefheart was gigging around at different bands in Lancaster and Antelope Valley, and it was strictly a blues uh, setup that he was doing. I mean, Don Van Vliet had an amazing voice that was particularly suited to the blues. A lot of a lot of people uh, often referenced Howling Wolf, I right? Think, absolutely, voc- vocals. Though he also had an, an amazing range with his voice and could evidently do things to the mics. So lucky he's not here right now, to our knowledge, because we <laughs> want to preserve our mics. Um, so back then he would be playing blues and, and other things. Yeah, and so he he pick up different bands. Uh, you know, the, the Antelope Valley music scene in the 60s, late 50s was really uh, incestuous. So there's people in each other's bands. Here at Hole in the Air, we revere our fine friends over at the Silver Lake Annunciator, which is why it is with great joy that I point to a Silver Lake Captain Beefheart connection. You see, though Don Van Vliet spent much of his life in desert enviros, as a young boy he lived in the splendid community of Silver Lake and attended Ivanhoe Elementary School. But eventually uh, he landed a deal with A&M and they put out two singles that were fairly mainstream. And uh, Was Diddy Wah Diddy? Yeah, Diddy Wah Diddy, exactly. I actually saw Beefheart at the Teenage Fair. When I was really young. Where was that held? At the Palladium. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. When they did Diddy Wah Diddy. Yeah, I've heard about that show. Um, one of the members of the Magic Band is a guy by the name of John French, also known as Drumbo. Uh, he wrote a very, very exhaustive and interesting uh, biography, autobiography. And he mentions that particular show the teenage fair and at the palladium as being a really big deal because i think taj mahal played there too is and ry cooter was in taj mahal's band well, I remember, ry, ry cooter I, I, I was actually, in the magic band for a while yeah, i, actually, for, I, for I a remember while. beefheart and i remember the leaves playing oh great <laughs> who did one of the that's funny many classic versions of hey joe among other things yeah yeah um but now we're dating ourselves, I think. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think that's a problem, honestly, because the idea of a teen fair nowadays is so completely alien, but somehow it, it, it seems perfect for that era. Right? And, and Beefheart was, uh, first of all, in a certain sense, so avant-garde, but in another sense uh, was very uh, visceral and... and uh, how can I put it? I don't want to say sexy or hot but i think the the music is was a, a body music it wasn't just a mind thing mm-hmm. the, the uh even as as unusual as the lyrics often were um there's no doubt that that he was uh, raised not just in the blues or himself raised himself in the blues but that a lot of it was music to dance with dance to and to do other things to and um so at a teen fair the idea of of that happening as teenagers seeing Beefheart is just amazing. And again, if you uh, those who never saw Beefheart, if they, if you go online, look at YouTube, there are some videos that some of them will certainly convey. I think what I mean. Um, I, who did I see open up? I, one show across from USC. Uh, not that I attended the school. It was uh, Mystic Nights of Oingo Boingo, but I remember at the Troubadour seeing. Um, 
Oh, why can't I remember that? I've told you this, Renee. Ma- Ma- Martin Mull and his yeah. traveling furniture Hi, opening right. up. Martin and Mull, I just remember some, some song, some thing where he said, I cannot say au revoir. Or he put on a, like a, what was supposed to look like a French mustache. Cannot say au revoir, au revoir so instead I'll sing hors d'oeuvre. Hors d'oeuvre. And that was opening for Beefheart. It was always kind of unusual who you'd see in bills of that era anyway. Um, I think yeah the the unusual nature of it is uh, is thematic and uh I think that's partly why Victor Hayden got involved with Beefheart because they not only were they obviously they were related to one another so they knew what was going on in each other's lives but uh Victor was brought on board for the recording sessions of of Trout Mask Replica at the very end and he was asked to contribute in his really avant-garde way to to what these other people had worked very hard to, to put together. But more importantly, I'm trying to express that when one enters the realm of Beefheart and Victor Hayden, um, unusual is a usual. <laughs> Alas, our podcast team neglects to ask a fundamental question. Why was Victor Hayden also known as the Mascara Snake? Ah, but I, your podcast interlocutor, can illuminate you on this very topic. Beefheart assigned fanciful names to many members of the Magic Band. The roll call includes the likes of Zoot Horn Rollo, Drumbo, Antennae, Jimmy Siemens, and Rocket Morton. On a Dutch radio interview, Beefheart explained, I didn't care for their names, and they seemed to be related to their mama and their papa, and I don't think that I'd get along with their mama and their papa, so I gave them the names. The captain would add, laughingly, The mascara snake, that's a relatively true name. He's a snake, and he does wear mascara. As for how Don Van Vliet became known as Captain Beefheart, there are various stories, often allegedly about this or that part of his body, but in an appearance on Late Night with David Letterman, Van Vliet said it was because he had a beef in his heart against society. Beefheart was also kind of legendary for, or again, Don Van Vliet, whatever, was legendary for being a very severe taskmaster in terms of assigning... Uh, dictating how pieces should be played, ensuring that musicians knew every note the way he had uh, intended to hear them, uh, whether or not there were intermediaries ever. It's a, it's a subject of some uh, you know, debate that will probably never be satisfied. Um, but uh, and by that I mean there are people in the band who would certainly, from what I understand, um, help uh, make sure that the band was able to play what Beefheart wanted to hear. Right. Um, but uh, I never heard of... And people were ushered out of the band at times. Uh, it seemed like Victor had his own capacity to wander in and out on his own terms, from what I've read and heard. Um, I will say that... Uh, I, I've also read that there are a couple other uh, well-known relatives. One of them is uh, the character actor... When Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens. Right. Who was the Marvel, a great character actor, and maybe he was related, maybe on a different side of the family. I don't know. Well, one thing I'd like to, to mention here is that Victor's ability, as you said, to, to walk in and out of the recording sessions is actually one of the things that really was, uh, 
I want to say pissed off. I don't know if I can say that, but it was something that really was a bone of contention with the other musicians because they'd spent months and months rehearsing, and then this guy's called in at the last minute. Captain uh, Don Van Viet spent the money that was supposed to go to the band to buy Victor Hayden a bass clarinet, which he didn't know how to play. So there was immediately a lot of resentment from the from the members of the the permanent members of the Magic Band. This is part of this chaos, and what you were saying earlier about it, it's not, there's no debate like whether or not Captain Beefheart was a taskmaster. I mean, it's pretty clear that he was, could be a real tyrant. The question, and it's a debate is, did it work? Was it worth it? For these, the, and the answer in terms of art is yes. But if you talk to the musicians who got no credit, like John Drumbo, French, who played all over Trout Mask Replica and it's not even credited, then it's not, it's, it's a real bummer. <laughs> Although, uh, and I'm, my memory sucks. I could actually find it. I have one of, there's a number of books about Beefheart out. Oh, yeah. And uh, one of the persons who um, did get into some uh, discussion, shall we say, about how much credit he did or didn't get um, is a, a person named Herb or, or Herb Berman, who wrote some of the lyrics, and how much credit he gets, and whether he ever got you know, or what kind of pay. Those are that's part of what's discussed at times, yeah. and also what's not discussed when he maybe simply said he didn't want to discuss it. But um, in the interviews that did appear. He makes clear that it's worth it in the sense of of something extraordinary resulting, and he, whether or not, uh, you know, certainly there's again contention over how much credit for certain lyrics, whatever, who worked on things together, whether whether his name was put down there or, yeah. or not as as a contributing f- uh, person. Uh, he certainly says it's you know, great art is great art. I mean, right. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I guess, what you said, but that's that's the sentiment. And you know, there are there are those of us in all walks of life, I think, who go through various episodes of our existence, and we might at times yeah. think there were some wretched details having to do with this or that uh, professional or personal relationship, but it still is worth it. Because whatever happened, it was still something enriching or it was something that made a contribution. Right. And we can all be cynics or skeptics, but at the end of the day, you know, I think m- many of us appreciate stuff even if it's on a class uh, you know, half-full basis. Sure. Especially when something that seems to be extraordinarily lasting and of fine quality is, has, uh, has resulted. Right, I understand. But it, it's funny because art is the only... Uh, profession or endeavor where people who are contribute and are uh, contribute to the end result and are credited are told well at least you contributed to something great <laughs> like if you told that to a scientist who came up with a formula that that was a groundbreaking thing you you know you couldn't get away with saying wow you should feel good you contributed to a great thing i think a lot of people try <laughs> to get art. away i think a lot of people try actually in different fields try to get away with it maybe it's a little easier or a lot easier in art to actually yes, get away totally. with it um, and yeah i think there's the uh, ethos ethic whatever of i mean we we all know the storyline the arc of it's in movies uh, movie making too but of the bands that come together and 
right as the Beatles are about to make it, uh, you know, Pete Best is given wh- whoever doesn't make it onto the the, uh, the the into the ranks of stardom when those bands do get there. Usually, somebody or other seems to have been ditched in the process. And of course, for every band like that, there are all those that don't make it and that put out a single or two that maybe gets discovered in some. Uh, garage sale 40 years later and the remaining members who were alive get a, of the band get a, a moment of added uh, attention but it's it's tough uh, in this culture and maybe in most cultures but uh, that said Beef Art is uh, and the Magic Band and there are a lot of amazing musicians who have played in the band uh, you, you know I think you mentioned one, but the, I think I, I said Ry Cooter did play for a while, and there are other people, uh, and so just uh, tr- tremendous musicians, many of them, who were, it seems, asked to play t- wholly not in keeping with how they were accustomed to playing the, their instruments, and, and um, most are all adapted in some ways. And maybe didn't get paid much. There are all kinds of things that happened, but right. uh, which we can decide to credit to genius or not, to rationalize it or not. Um, it's really nice that uh, Victor Hayden, who had this, as he said, curious capacity to wander in and out in a way that maybe rankled some of the other band members, but he seems to have done it on his own terms. He then went ahead and from what I've read and understood from others uh he did other things on his own terms he ended up in was it portland i ended up in seattle seattle yeah Close enough. working for a record label called pig records um but that's that's pretty much jumping pretty far into the future you know um the the whole uh, victor's involvement in trout mask replica it's interesting because it's sort of emblematic of the whole chaotic environment that was going on. I mean that that that's an that's a really crazy story in itself. Uh, but, go for it. Hmm? Go for it if you want. Well, uh, huh. I think you talk about Beefheart being a taskmaster. Yeah, he definitely had ideas about what he wanted to to have done, and was a real tyrant about it. So. A lot of people um, felt, uh, a lot of the band members really felt like they were pushed into directions that uh, obviously they wouldn't have gone in before, but they didn't particularly feel like it was a, it was a great thing. You know, uh, I know a couple of the band members came out of that saying it was probably the worst experience of their life, <laughs> even though it contributed to what some people would say is a great, you know, a masterpiece. I think, that, well, I'm not trying to, to defend that assertion when I say a lot of people say that it is a masterpiece it is on a lot of the lists that come out of great albums um you know then there are those including i think myself who don't necessarily consider it our favorite beef art album much less yeah but still and it, it did come out recently jack white on his label put out a, a new whatever renovated or, or you know the ultimate vinyl version of it. Um, oh, no kidding. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, it just it came out recently. I don't know what it costs, <laughs> but it's probably more than uh, a quarter. <laughs> um, by the way, the uh, the spoken with call and response about Fast and Bulbous involves uh, the two of them and 
uh, one says something about also a, I'm I'm reading this now also a tin teardrop and uh, so, so what exactly is it that is fast and bulbous and the the answer comes a squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag now I'm not <laughs> attempting to recite it the way it's recited there but it's kind of an, a a unique exchange for rock and roll and maybe for anything in our culture and and um, I think. Well, of course, Don Van Vliet also ended up uh, spending many years as a painter. As a painter, even while he battled health issues, and and um, the paintings are also certainly worth seeing uh, in person or online. Right. And by the way, I uh, just want to say to the listening audience that uh, not only did we exhibit at the Lisa Derrick Gallery uh, Victor Hayden work, but there were. Uh, a couple of uh, original beef hearts that were in the mix uh, because Victor and and Don were very close. I could sort of picture them working together late at night with a sheet, you know, a pad of newsprint and their art making materials, and just being two kids together, albeit grown up, but still just like making art for art's sake and having a good time. It, it, but. It's important to note that as as far as Beefheart's later career as a visual artist, that and Trout Mask Replica, the original release of it, features artwork by uh, Victor Hayden. The original cover, the original cover idea was a painting by Victor Hayden. And uh, the album that came somewhat after that, which was Blue Jeans and Moonbeams, also featured a Victor Hayden cover. So, so he, Victor was kind of like taking care of the art quotient before Don shit can music. So I think that's kind of interesting that that Victor was covering that end of things for for Don. Now, I, am I correct? Uh, Victor introduced Pamela DeBar to Don Van Vliet. I oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> so. I'm pretty sure that, that that's how it went. That uh, Victor Hayden were, appealed to uh, Pamela DeBar because of his long hair and his anti-establishment <laughs> looks and attitude at the time. And he was, or, since being a relative of Don Van Vliet, he obviously, Victor already knew him. So she, he, he turned her on to Captain Beefheart. And she, I think, became the first fan club. Uh, right. I think yeah. I read that both of them were involved right. with the mm-hmm. yeah, fan yeah. club. Mm-hmm. And as you said, I think he used the word famous groupie. Uh, she's a legend in the, in the history of rock and roll and also uh, Los Angeles society, if I can put it that way. It's maybe a peculiar way of putting it. but um, Yeah, absolutely. And to some, she's actually a feminist hero right. as well. And uh, last name is being spelled B-A-R-R-E-S or D-E-S, B-A-R-R-E-S. Am I correct? Uh, you folks can... Uh, she has podcasts, I think, believe going, and, and you should check those out and uh, look her up. It has written books, and uh, she certainly has a an extraordinary wealth of information and oh, yeah. stories to tell galore. She's oh, famous herself for a whole host of reasons. Uh, you know, there's Wikipedia for those of you who like to go there. You can look her up. But um, how did it end up at the Lisa? Do you know Lisa Derrick uh, Gallery? Well. Yeah, um, one thing I want to, to, to mention, though, is that um, when I got invited to do this show and I accepted, I basically opened a Pandora's box <laughs> that I had of history and personalities, 
connections that I was completely unaware of, like, like Pamela DeBar, her whole history and the GTOs and Zappa. And so uh, just one of the things, aspects of all this that really kept me interested and fascinated to the point that I took what I was doing very seriously was this expanding circle of influence in these crazy characters that I was meeting, you know, Pamela DeBar, the... Um, Miss Mercy, all the GTOs. The GTOs just, being, excuse me. Do you want to explain the G define the GTOs? Uh, the GTOs were a band called uh, the GTOs was an all girl band, standing for girls together outrageously. It was put together by Frank Zappa. Pamela DeBar was one of the members. Um, on their few recording sessions that they did, Jeff Beck played, uh, Rod Stewart sang. All these people coming through town contributed to the GTO's record. So, that's, I mean, there's all these crazy artifacts, you know, that, that, that are floating around from those times. And I feel really fortunate that I can meet these people in the flesh and have a discussion with them and ask you, what was it like back then? Because I couldn't do that with Victor. That was the only bummer about this whole thing is that I was dealing with a dead person that I couldn't call up or... Or, or, you know, get anything personal from. I had to get all my information from interviews, from books, from people who would come over and talk to me. The amount of people that came out of the woodwork once they heard I was doing this was absolutely insane. And he was... Old girlfriends showed up at my studio just to look at his work hmm. and weep. Uh, <laughs> and he was... It was last year he was hit by a van and he... Yeah, in December of 2018. How, how old was he? 70. He was born in 48. Now, for those of we've yeah. taken a, I've taken a while to say this, but uh, you can see some of his work, some of the works that are in the show by visiting... Oh, yes. Um, if, to really get the show going, I started a Facebook event page. Um, and I started a couple of months in advance of the show because there was so much great ephemera that I didn't want it to... I felt like I wanted this to be a resource that people could return to later if they wanted to. So um, the actual address is uh, Fast and Bulbous, The Art of Victor Hayden. That's You just put that in the search engine yeah. on Facebook, and, and that's, that's the only bloody thing that's going to come up. <laughs> F-A-S-T-A-N-D-B-U-L-B-O-U-S. That's right, Fast and Bulbous. When you talk about Los Angeles, and certainly in the era of the 60s and thereafter, uh, the great L.A. bands, whether or not one is a fan of all of them, the names that come to mind include The love. Doors, uh, Arthur Lee and Love. Uh, Beefheart is right there uh, in the Magic Band. This is your podcast interlocutor with a cordial note to my man, Paul. Uh, if you're going to mention the most consequential bands in L.A. history, you might also include... The Birds, The Midnighters, and the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band. And gosh, I don't know, X and the Go-Go's, to name a few. But time for such interruptions is fleeting. So, back to you, kind souls. It's amazing, to, to I think, to realize that, among other things, in very tumultuous times, um, chaotic times in a lot of ways, uh, with all kinds of things in the air, there was be part of the magic band along with the people that you were mentioning that you've uh, you know, you've met as a result of this, and uh, they were 
a lot of times cross currents. We may not sense those or see those now from our distance you know, years later. But uh, they were tremendously influential in all kinds of ways. And it's kind of cool that people could get together and make art and have that kind of influence. It's, uh, uh, hopefully it's happening all over the place now. And hopefully sometimes with uh, something even remotely approaching the imagination and the, the unique vision of, of people who in this country and elsewhere have, have really made for spectacularly special and, and just out of the blue art. Um, so, I mean, I'm thrilled that, that you, for you, I wish I had met some of those folks. <laughs> Next time, drag me along. But I think it's great that, 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 that some are still out here, even if we missed out on Victor Hayden, we do get to see the art. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, uh, that's interesting because, you know, the art transcends the, the, the physical presence of these people. So it's as close as you're going to get. And it's pretty damn close to meeting Victor Hayden. Especially if you read his interviews, and then you go and see the work, and you can say, "Oh my God, it's uh, it's exactly this reflects exactly what he was saying in his interviews and so forth." Um, Some of those it, interviews are available on the, the the Captain Beefheart the website devoted to him, which is Beefheart dot com. Like, it used to I think be it's called a Doc at the Radar. It used to be station. called. Is it still Doc at the Radar Station? I'm not sure. Uh, Doc at the Radar Radar Station. It's. It's worth it to look up what's about, including about this exhibition, but also there's a couple, there's an old interview or two, and they're really fun to read. Beefheart, uh, like his cousin, they're both tr- great interviews. But also, I mean, uh, those of us that were lucky enough to see Beefheart live will have I, in, a, an impression on their brain forever how he intimidated the audience most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing him one time. I don't remember where it was, but Zuthorn Rollo flew across the stage first, and it was the most. It was as is the closest thing I could imagine of somebody flying. <laughs> it was just a magnificent guitarist yeah. for the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah. bass guitar, and it was whoa, you know, in for a treat. Yeah, Beefheart had this amazing yeah. swagger to him a lot of times, and and all the I mean, really, many of the musicians were just amazing to watch and hear. Um, the music, again, not for everyone's tastes. I would always recommend if somebody didn't like this or that song to to, to be patient and listen to other stuff, because um, we all, most of us, take a while sometimes to hear something new, uh, to really hear it and be open to it. Uh, so if you don't if you don't know Beefheart's music, it's worth it to to give it some time. Um, the as far as the mascara snake, Victor Hayden, um, he was doing art as you said, uh, in some ways well before. Oh yeah, totally. One of the things I um, I found when I was going through his his ephemera was, you know, his first place ribbons for. His artwork is at the Antelope Valley Alfalfa Festival in 1963. So he was, from the early age, he was entering art contests, doing, doing all the right things, you know. So it's not surprising, really, that, that he was eventually brought in as a, as a visual artist like that. But yeah, he was, you know, um, the more I speak with people about him, the more I realize that Victor really was a true artist in the, in the, in the most heavy sense of the word, because, 
Um, he worked constantly. As you said in, uh, in one of those interviews that I read about him, he didn't even particularly care that much about showing it, it seems like. So, well, you know, when you're dealing with an artist like that, they're, they're into it for reasons other than commerce. And, and that was really impressive. But, you know, it's funny because you talk about like, hey, man, you know, people can't listen to Beefheart. It's too weird and, and funky and they, they can't get a grip on it. And I think people's tolerance for that kind of um, unfamiliarity, their tolerance is higher for that with art than it is for music. Because you can, you know, so I think people, when they went to the Victor Hayden show, they didn't really know what to expect, but they were completely open to it. And I think it delivered the goods because it's just somehow, like I said, I think it's easier to accept avant-garde visually than musically. <laughs> uh, now, I should note that the work is for sale, a lot of it at least. Oh, yeah, and, the work's for sale. And, and at affordable rates. So people uh, who want to own a touch of uh, something special, uh, a, a nice work or two, uh, go online at the uh, well, can they track it down through? Yeah, the, through the Fast and Bulbous uh, site, and um, he also did some commercial art design, correct? Like uh, some advertising stuff, a bit here and there, a vodka ad, I think. Right. At, at one time, the Absolute Vodka Company was trying to, you know, become hip, get to get well known, and get them. Uh, I don't even know what they call them. I don't think they call them millennials yet, but if they even if millennials existed at that point. But so they had artists design different bottles and advertisements and so forth. So that's probably as far in the commercial direction as as as, uh, as Victor ever went. Although he worked for Pig Records and did album covers for uh, the Melvins, uh, most notably, and uh, other bands. I don't think he did Gigi Allen, but he was on the same label. My take, sorry, my take is kind of curious. This is back to B. Fard, his cousin, uh, Don Van Fleet, um, who also, when he was quite young, you may know, I mean, there there were articles, I think a couple different years, in the old L.A. Herald Examiner about Don Van Fleet winning, I think it was sculpture contest. Sculpture, yeah. Um, So there's a sort of parallel line. And even they're both, as I said, really be, as I said before, really interesting uh, interviews. I mean, they re- say remarkable things. They're really fun to read if you can track down any of them, uh, and they are online. Um, but there's also a real awareness each has, a different vernacular of sorts. But they both are focused on, among other things, art and, and not accepting uh, and protesting against the. I don't, corporate uh, uh, takeover of art and music in some ways. And they both show a tremendous uh, awareness of nature, which is kind of, for its era, maybe a little bit surprising. I mean, now climate change and all sorts of things happening, we might half expect artists to be speaking out for nature and life of species other than ours, and maybe even to find a way of doing it in, in a way that's not sounding, maybe the way I'm sounding, kind of like you know, blah, 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 uh, cocktail party chatter in political circles. These are people who you can tell in their deepest way f- 
felt for animals and life and and would express that poetically but would insist on on its priority and so in some ways i see them really more than i expected frankly at this point having seen the exhibition at the opening and having read reread some of the interviews mm-hmm. i see them as being actually really closely linked not just because they have this shared family and and even you know, to some extent musical and artistic connections but because I really wonder how they got to be so close in some ways and how they think and feel about the world, even though it got expressed differently by each of them. Uh, there's that. There's a real sense of kinship, I think. Right. Um, so that was just my take anyway. Well, it's, uh, Victor uh, mentioned one of his interviews that he felt uh, at a certain, in the 30s and 40s, well, in the 30s and 40s, 50s, there was more art and music was more uh, uh, close to nature. And mm. now, uh, with the, the postmodern situation we're in, you know, once upon a time, if you wanted to draw a cat, you found a cat, you did a drawing of a cat. Now you can just go online and find a drawing of a cat. You don't even need a real-life cat anymore. So it's interesting because I think we've distanced ourselves from nature since since Victor and and... And Dawn were in their formative stages, so it's kind of. But also, I know that Beefheart was like really heavily into animal rights. Mm-hmm. He wasn't like a PC type of person who would broadcast it. But there's certain uh, lyrics in his songs where he talks about treating animals fairly and so forth. Clean up the air, treat the animals fair. Yeah, yeah. That exactly. was uh, the, that was a line in what song? Oh, I don't know. They're Space Age Couple. Why don't you do your magic? Yeah. Shuffle? Yeah. So how long is the show up up until? Do you know? Uh, the show's up until uh, June 11th. Okay. So uh, my band, Cat Museum, is scheduled to play uh, on the 8th. We're going to set June. up. Okay. Yeah. And are you playing at the Lisa Derrick uh, site? The- uh, it depends on the, the electricity situation, but we're going to be either in front of the gallery or in front of a coagula. Which is near... Which is within... Shouting this, I mean, yeah, it's really close. Chunking by. Road, yeah, on Chunking Chinatown. Road. Uh, are you what's next for you? Um, I other have, than that, which is yeah, I have uh, art shows coming up in uh, in Santa Fe. When that is going to be in July, sorry, I don't know the exact date. Um, basically, I like to show out of town, having lived in LA as long as I have. Um, I'm sort of the old favorite flavor. So now I, so I'd like to go to show in other towns where everybody's just dumbfounded and they're really happy to see me. Whereas I've been here so long that people go, it's another show. Change your name. <laughs> That's Change. <all>. Okay. <laughs> Are you right? I get married. Left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alas and alack, we've done you wrong and misery abounds. When our podcast team recorded Anthony Osgang, the night was young. The Victor Hayden exhibition was fresh up, and Anthony's band was yet to play its special gig. But woefulness incarnate, our podcast team fumbled the ball, got stuck in techie quicksand, and by now the exhibition has been taken down and the music's over. Even the group show with Anthony's work in it at Keep Contemporary Gallery in Santa Fe is ending mere days away, with July 14th said to be the final day. 
For Hole in the Air, this is our dreaded pit of shame and lamentation. But you can still be happy visiting Anthony's various websites for the taste of art and sounds that you crave. His relevant social media links are mentioned throughout this podcast. Do you have a favorite P-Fart song, by the way? Oh, well, um, gosh, you know, it, it's funny. Not really. I mean, I do like Blabber and Smoke that we just talked about because I've known people. That's a really sharp observation on his part because there are people who just blabber and smoke. That's all they do. And it's nice when uh, something that like that is picked up and turned into an art piece or a musical composition. You know, you go, oh, I can relate to that. And that's a, that's a really great thing. Even in the weirdness that was kept Don Van Vliet, the, 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 the bizarre nature of uh, Victor Hayden and his art-making process, you know, it, it's still, uh, oh, lost it. Anyway, <laughs> it still works yeah. somehow. So, and while we're still so here, much for we making risk- like profound statements. Well, <laughs> losing it is kind of part of the fun of the, the fun tragedy of life. We uh, we hold on to to some extent memories and make new ones, but we right. also uh, um, certainly in terms of music, we can miss the ones we enjoyed who may not be making music anymore, or may not be with us anymore. Um, we can mourn that there is, to our knowledge at least, sometimes no one like whoever that was, but you know, the pleasures are finding other stuff. And sometimes, in this instance, it's to see a lot of artwork that we hadn't necessarily seen before, but that does resonate for us. Right. Um, and I, I think... Uh, Again, all I can say is at the opening, so a lot of people wandering in and just enjoying, a huge crowd, enjoying the show. And uh, I don't think, uh, I think one just enjoyed the spirit of the show as much as anything else, too. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and part of the show was uh, also a kind of dry run, because Victor had only shown a couple of times in his life. So this was, there was the fact that there was this fairly major show of his work, I think, um was quite important there was a fantasy that we're going to sell out that people are going to go nuts rolling stone was going to show up you know of course none of these things happened they were motivating fantasies that kept us going but we're certainly happy with the with the people that showed up and i am actually trying to get a show of victor hayden's work at the museum of art and history in lancaster Uh um those guys having been high desert and low valley people, I've, I've approached the museum and said, look, you know, are you aware that there's this avant-garde history to Lancaster? You know, there's more than just alfalfa and methamphetamines going on here. There's, there's an actual history of, of that's, you know, affects it's global in a way. So that's, so it was very good for the curator of that museum to come to the opening and see all these people, dig in the work, see it set up like that. And so um, it's basically that show was, we wanted to, a dry run for greater things. So, and, and, but it's, the strangest thing to me for, throughout all of this is, that I, for me, it's kind of like ego destruction, you know. I had to put the I completely, hmm. you know, in a box and forget it. And I was dealing with he, which is Victor. So it was kind of refreshing for me. And I was able to do things that I would be afraid to do, like to promote my own work. But I'd like hire someone else to promote my own work, 
but I can totally give promote Victor. You know, it's it's a funny thing because I'm not promoting myself. I'm promoting this this third party. Somehow that's that's more freeing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I I think you know. So we'll see what I'm, happens. I'm really. I, I, I think Victor's work is strong enough that it can go places without always having to be uh, piggybacking on, on Don Van Vliet. And so that's kind of like I, what I'd like to, to try and do. But he's always going to be associated with, with that whole thing, you know. I think the, uh, first of all, I like, I think he used the phrase motivating fantasy. <laughs> um, and I think most of the things that, at least for, speaking for myself, that I've been involved with professionally and in terms of causes, and, and generally in a selfless way, there's there's a want for things to happen, and you kind of convince yourself things can happen, and a lot of times they just don't happen. But it's kind of better that we have those motivating fantasies, I think, than we not have them. Well, absolutely. And, and then there's always the you know you. you uh, you reach for the stars or whatever it is that you, you, sometimes it comes true. I think it's both sad and happy that sometimes it's sort of reassuring. It's not helpful, but it's reassuring to know that sometimes even after one's hit by a van and dies, that somebody else is there who's going to pick, who's going to do something to 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 notice and bring people's attention to. The work that that meant something. To yeah, them. yeah. And it, so it's still, the meaning doesn't disappear, and so it's it is. Again, I don't know how helpful it is to somebody after they're gone, or even if it's years later and they're alive, to have uh, some attention, perhaps belatedly granted. But um, it is the nature. A lot of times we know of art and uh, for things to surface only eventually. And yet the only part is that phrase only misses the boat if it's a question of how many people's lives can be touched and changed and inspired by something that happened some time back but is now coming to their uh, their you know, awareness. So I, I certainly appreciate greatly uh, that you took on curating this. No, I, you know, what I was surprised was when I reached out to the uh, Beefheart uh, the estate of Captain Beefheart, I thought that they'd be really stoked. I thought they'd be fascinated by this and, and be into it. And they were like, <laughs> they didn't care at all. They, you know, and when we, I, I was really shocked at that because I thought, wow, you know, I've got these pictures of, of Captain Beefheart as, you know, a seven-year-old. I've got all this crazy ephemera, the lyric sheets from the recording sessions, all this great stuff. And they were just... So I was really surprised when, because I thought that's one of the motivating fantasies I'm talking about. It's like, oh, the beef heart. And then when we tried to get the beef hearts pieces that we actually, that we have, to get them authenticated was impossible. Basically, it was a catch-22. These guys, we all... There's no money in it for us, so we're not going to give you a rubber stamp. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's sad. I don't think it's just art and music even. I think it is a strange thing. And uh, therefore, this this is an oddball tribute to everyone out there who just does stuff that they believe in and care for, does it out of their best intentions, even when the people who you'd think would be supportive act alarmed or indifferent. Um, it's tricky, but sometimes you get to the point where, where 
change occurs and their attitudes are, are changed and maybe they're more open. And in any case, you've done what you believe in. So good for you folks out there. Um, Anthony, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. And congratulations on the show. It's great. It's a lot show. of fun. Uh, the show, uh, again, you think the band is going to be playing when? Your oh, Cat Museum. My band Cat Museum will be playing June 8th. And uh, look forward to those of you uh, who have not yet made it over to the gallery to see Victor Hayden's art downtown Los Angeles and Chinatown, Lisa Derrick's uh, uh, gallery, the Lisa Derrick Gallery. Yeah, Lisa Derrick Fine Arts. Arts. But uh, I will constantly be updating the Facebook page, which once again is Fast and Bulbous. Do you have your own site, Anthony? Uh, my own website is uh, www.osgangart.com. That's A-U-S-G-A-N-G-A-R-T.com. So, so when you uh, uh, sneak out of town to go to Santa Fe or wherever <laughs> to have your uh, Red Hot hit show there, that will be some word will be on your website. Oh, yeah, everything. Uh, yeah. My website is basically the portal to all things Oscang. So there you go. And we've known you uh, for many, many years. Renee has worked mm-hmm. with you on, among other things, a, a mural project. Anthony did the mural in, in Vernon, which I think is still there. No. And you, you won't. It's all you, gone. It's interesting. It's gone? Um, yeah, Renee here uh, <laughs> got me to do a mural on the side of a, a natural gas cogeneration plant in the city of Vernon that was across the street from a slaughterhouse. <laughs> Um, so I decided to do a piece that was vaguely vegetarian and, and, uh, so there were just, it, it was absolutely incredible because all these butchers would walk by and, and watch me work on this mural. And, and there was one guy and this guy was covered with chain mail and blood. I mean, and he carried, he had a belt of knives that were like 16 inch long razor sharp knives. And he'd look at me every day. And on the last day I was working, he came up to me and he says, you know, you painted a cow, but the, but the food on the table is pork. <laughs> you know, so you got, he goes, you got to learn your meat cuts. <laughs> so I don't, <laughs> an utter catastrophe. Um, and but unfortunately, all of that has been completely plowed under. The, the, oh, the cogeneration plant's gone. I didn't even know that. The, uh, the, the slaughterhouse is gone. Everything. Farmer John's is gone? No, no, it was another one. Farmer uh, John's okay. is still there. But yeah. it's very strange to go there now, and it's there's nothing. There is nothing left of what was there 20 years ago. And, and My mural's gone. The subject, for, and that's sad. I want to I go see it. But now, I want to go right now. But uh, yeah. City of Vernon is one of the most unusual places on the planet. Oh, God. And so that's a subject, I think, for another podcast. Mm-hmm. It truly is a <laughs> remarkable place uh, for all kinds of reasons. And the history. 60 voters. 60, 60 voters that's it. and thousands of pigs. <laughs> and they all live. They, they all live in um, housing that is owned by the city. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, a, it's a weird scene. And a lot of businesses do business happily there. And it's a, a, a city with a history of a mile-long bar, a minor league team, a, a double, the famous double knockout fight, uh, boxing match. Um, <laughs> all kinds of colorful stuff has happened there. It's one of those uh, wild, wild west, no holds barred in terms of its politics, its heritage, its business life, its few residents, its uh, political stuff uh, and that that that's occurred and caused controversies certainly over the years. And uh, now we know it's also 
as le- as legendary as not for its um, cow pork mural. <laughs> so again, Thanks so much. thank you okay. so much, and uh, and everyone go, go out and, and if you can check out the uh, the art uh, of Victor Hayden, the mascara snake, aka. Yay. Yay. Thanks. Bye-bye. The one change between now and uh, what we've recorded, well, it's an addendum unless we insert this midway through, in which case we've messed with our own minds, if not yours. But we also have Red Hots, uh, those of you who know the... Atomic uh, Fireballs, man. Atomic Fireballs. <laughs> in our, or, so if you hear sounds of, that sound like they're coming out of our mouth but are not words, <laughs> they, they involve us uh, having these uh, Atomic Fireballs in our mouths. Um, That's uh, right. And hopefully that's a, that's a good thing. Oh, totally. Um, yeah, one of the, the, the most profound experiences I had from this was when uh, I had finally chosen all the artwork, and it came out to about 190 pieces. When I put them on the wall at the gallery, I suddenly noticed themes that I hadn't seen before. Certain graphic things were going on, and uh, Victor's whole obsession with bees... I don't know if you realize that uh, once once you understand that Victor had this bee obsession and look at the work, about 80% of his work has, has subliminal bees or directly outright bees in it. So really the coolest thing for me was the, the exhibition of the work and, and seeing all that work on the wall together. It was just unbelievable. And it took shape as he proceeded. It wasn't like you knew in advance what was going to take place right and people kept asking me oh you hung the art show so well uh how did you choose what to hang next to each piece i was like uh well whatever was on top of the pile (laughs) you know (laughs) but you got it done that's part of the work but oh yeah you you did say you've curated other shows Uh, do you have any recommendations to people who for whatever reason somebody just says why don't you curate a show or the or a a space opens up and an idea pops into someone's head, or maybe it's somebody who's been doing this for a while. Do you have any either recommendations or or even just a, a, a some sort of uh, evocative way of, of saying what you think it's like to do? Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know if it's evocative or not, but I would like to tell a person who's going to curate a show that there's always going to be somebody who's going to be... Uh creating problems is going to deliver the work late and is going to be complaining all the time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that uh, curating can be a thankless task sometimes, you know. But Do you, do you expect people, somebody or other, a t- perhaps a total stranger to, to complain about something or other? Do, is, are there people, or are you, do, are you happy to get any kind of reaction to it? Oh, in terms of the people who are looking at the art? Yeah. Oh, you know, I... I I've heard it all, you know. Some per- one person can walk in and say that it's, they're looking at one piece of art and say it's the greatest thing they've ever seen, and the next person that comes in is offended and wants to, you know, call the LAPD for some reason. It's crazy. Especially when, it's in, when they're in Des Moines. Sorry. <laughs> what about when somebody's curating your art? I mean, does it, since you've been curating art, does it give you another perspective or, or an appreciation or disdain or (laughs) (laughs) Um, having experienced being curated (laughs) um, I base and and having experienced being a curator I just understand that I want to make it as easy as possible when I'm curated into a show to uh, 
deliver the art on time, deliver the photograph of the art on time, you know, take care of my end of the deal. Because once again, we're talking about ego, and if you're curating a show, everybody thinks they're the most important person in the show, and it's just not the case. And the fact that you've... Uh, Humility, I guess, is what I've yeah. learned. And that you've curated doesn't mean you feel you have the authority to to sort of tell somebody else who's now curating your work to get lost, that you uh, recognize they have uh, some responsibility in doing things, including according to their sense of what's best. And you tend, I'm going to guess, to perhaps to gently suggest things, but also to at times defer if you think it's simply a question of differences of opinion that, that you've allowed other someone else to, to uh, curate and so you're going to let them curate? Is that how it works? Pretty much. You know, um, when I'm involved in a show that's being curated, generally there's some kind of a theme. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to say they want the, the show that I'm dealing with right now in Santa Fe. It's a group show. Um, and so I feel like I kind of want to do work that reflects the, the, the Santa Fe environment. There's the Southwest flavor a little bit. That wasn't specifically said, but um, yeah, when there's definite parameters that what one has to adhere to because someone's creating the show. So if you walk into a, a gallery or, uh, that has nothing to do with you in terms of your work or a show you're curating, do you, to what extent do you even think about the curating versus do you think about the art you're seeing? <laughs> Oh, that's a tough question. I mean, uh, on the whole, I, I, if it's a group show, try and look at it and say, okay, they succeeded. They got the the curator got the idea across. They chose the right artists. The artists themselves chose the right work, so the whole thing comes together. You know, and sometimes that just doesn't happen for whatever reason. Are you I'm ever like, grossly offended by something you see in in an exhibition? I'm only grossly offended by incompetence. Hmm. You know. <laughs> Because in the art world, some things, uh, yeah, in the art world, the, the value is perceived. You know what I mean? There's no absolute value in art. So go into a show like that and just say, oh, it's fa- it fails because the work isn't, uh, it's, it, it, they're not all syncing up. And since we haven't asked this, uh, when did you start doing art? Oh, well, I was kind of like Victor, I guess. I, I want a couple of first place ribbons. <laughs> You know, hey man, <laughs> I got some blue ribbons. Hey, <laughs> but I first started doing art seriously because uh, I actually was going to be a writer. And I came home and I told my parents I wanted to be a writer, and they said, "No, you can't be a writer. We forbid you to be a writer." So I said, "Oh well, then I'll be an artist." And they couldn't; they didn't say anything to that. What did they think you were going to write? That was so. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to and. It just it didn't happen, so I embarked on this art career, and uh, which has been you know reasonably successful, and now I I've, 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 I'm on my third novel, actually I'm writing and it's a lot of fun so, hmm. you know but well here's still there were other the artists in my family hmm. as it turned out because people would say once I began exhibiting artistic uh, tendencies people would say oh you're just like Hans. <laughs> You know, two generations ago. So you, so you're on your third novel. Have you actually done any journalism though, or have you? Still- yeah, I write art criticism for Artillery Magazine. I have a blog called Cat Call at artillerymag.com. Great. 
Um, I specialize in, in trashing art shows. <laughs> Who can blame you? You know, like, uh, but I'm very selective about it. Like Jeff Koons, I can write something really derogatory about that guy, and it's not going to affect him in the least, no. right? Whereas if I go to an art show and it's a terrible show, but it's by a young artist who's just starting out, I don't pick on him. I only pick on the people who already established I can't hurt their no. sales or career, you know? I think you should go to opening after opening <laughs> and just trash the the booze if they're serving any or the, the, uh, the pretzels. Yeah, Stale pretzels suck. I used whatever. to do that Oh yeah, when I drank. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> really? Well, you, know, you want class acts out of your galleries. Um, I just felt like there's so much pussyfooting and, and uh, things that aren't spoken in the art world. Because people are afraid to say that sucks because they think that they're missing the point and they'll show how stupid they are if they say it sucks. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, you should be able to, in the art world, say, you know what, that, that, that that's a failure. I don't know if you went to art school or took classes, what have you, but did you have any great art teachers? I had some great art teachers. Uh, one of my teachers, and I went to the Otis Art Institute, and she said, uh, you shouldn't make artwork that the world doesn't need, you know. And so that 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 approach, I've always stuck with it. When I when I start working on a painting, I think, does is the world going to benefit from this, or is the world just going to be static? You know, it's not going to make a difference at all. So I, I really do still to this day think that uh, the piece of art should be feel like it's necessary. And that's that becomes across completely when I do a painting and the first time I sell I show it it sells. That means that the world was ready for that painting, <laughs> you know. Because if it, unfortunately, sales in the art world are frequently a gauge of uh, aesthetic success, and that's not it shouldn't be that way. Are you able to visit your works once they're sold? If you even <laughs> like doing that, that's funny. Um, I'll tell you a little story. Once I was on Mulholland Drive and I could not find out where the hell I was going. I had this address that seemed to be like on on Mars. Anyway, so I, I finally got out of my car and I went up to the door of this house and knocked on the door and the door opened and there was this party going on and there was a, one of my paintings was on the wall. It was a really big painting of mine. And, I, and so I told the people who answered the door, I go, that's one of my paintings. That's That's incredible. What? Who lives here? <laughs> so they went and they got the, the owner of the house and, it, and all of a sudden I was this hero and, <laughs> and I was invited into the party and, and I got shook all these people's hands and then it was like, oh, fuck, the door. Excuse, <laughs> my, excuse my French, it's time to go. And, you know, they told me where I was supposed to go and I left. It was the weirdest thing. It was, it's it was a great co- story. It was, it was the weirdest thing, yeah, because... Um, but encountering my paintings in the real world is really strange. Like, because I I went to Goodwill in Long Beach and I found one of my paintings. <laughs> I wasn't angry. No. I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to rush to Long Beach and its Goodwill. Maybe I'll find one of my old used mics there. Don't you dare take it if you get there first. This is your podcast interlocutor, inviting you to be one with the universe by checking out more podcasts at slenunciator.com. Also, email us at slenunciator at gmail.com. 
Let us know your POVs and exercise your vanity if you want to inquire about being on a podcast. But first, let us telepathically transmit our gratitude to our musical chef, Fingers Del Rey, for the stew of sounds he cooks up for all of our podcasts. Yum, yum! And bye-bye! <laughs>